Charms made of diamond and pearl But the only and thoroughbred lady Is a rabble Chris Garlock here with this week's Labor History Today. I mean, it took actions like sit-downs and unlawful strikes to get any labor laws to begin with. But the first thing the labor laws did was to make sure you didn't take those kind of actions. The latest battle over labor law involves Scabby the Giant Inflatable Union protest rat, which is facing extermination at the hands of the Trump Labor Board. We check in with my old pal Matt Fusco on the history of legal and illegal labor protest. The loss of these long-standing smoking privileges in the workplace seems to portend of the overall decline of union clout. On August 9, 1997, President Bill Clinton issued Executive Order 13058, banning smoking in all interior spaces owned or operated by the executive branch of the federal government. Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon talks with Gregory Wood, author of Clearing the Air, the Rise and Fall of Smoking in the Workplace, about the history of workers' right to light up on the job. Plus, a tribute to Florence Reese, who wrote the labor classic, Which Side Are You On? Here's the show. To the fighting rebel boy, we've had girls before, but we need some more in the industrial workers of the world. For it's great to fight for freedom with the rebel. Workers and bosses have battled for years over the rules governing picketing work sites, questions about who can picket where, when, and how, and even the precise wording of picket signs have meant full employment for lawyers on both sides of the line. The latest battle over labor law involves Scabby, the giant inflatable union protest rat, which is facing extermination at the hands of the Trump Labor Board, which says that Scabby has, quote, crossed the line from legitimate communication to unlawful coercion, unquote. To find out more about this giant problem, we checked in with my old pal Matt Fusco on the history of labor protests. Matt's a labor lawyer in my hometown of Rochester, New York, and we've walked many a picket line together over the years. Ed Smith and I caught up with Matt on our Your Rights at Work radio show recently. I, I think I met you, Matt, when I took my one and only labor law class back in the day uh, at uh, Cornell, Cornell International. Was it such a bad course that it was you a never great course. took another course again in labor? <laughs> well, I tell you what, it was because of this. I was really, I was actually, I was not a bad student, right, Matt? Not bad. The problem was, <laughs> thank you. Actually, I don't even remember you. No, <laughs> no. The problem was, as Matt explained, you know, most of labor law comes down to property, right? I mean, you know, where can you stand and who's got what property, right? I mean, you know, that's what you're fighting over. And the other principle at work here, with regard to the rat, is the notion in American labor law that the dispute is between one employer and one group of workers at that one employer, and not a class-wide dispute, you right? Know, uh, so, so we have in American labor law the, what I call the anti-solidarity provisions of the Act, which say you cannot pick it anywhere except at your own employer. And this is a problem for people like janitors, who 
whose employer often has some small office, often an office park, but who work at a big downtown building. And they want to be able to pick it at that big downtown building where it's going to have some effect. Of course. Uh, but, but you're not allowed to pick it there. Uh, and so the question is, is the rat picketing or is it simply speech? Uh, well, let's let's back up and sort of remind folks. So, what we're talking about here are, the, and you guys, have, people have seen these. You see them around town. I mean, you know, any major metropolitan area, but well, not even major. I mean, I remember when I was up visiting Rochester a few years ago when the uh, the Mott strike was going on. And there was a big rat out on uh, 104. Um, so there's there's these inflatable r- rats and these inflatable fat cats, and um, we're actually going to try. They come from a place called Big Sky Balloons out of uh, Chicago. It started out as a sideline. I think it's become a pretty big part of their business and they got all different size rats all different size cats and you know honestly you know as an organizer myself i always thought you know it's kind of an add-on you do it along with the the picketing of the rally whatever i mean you know and any smart boss be like yeah whatever but matt apparently a lot of bosses are really freaked out by the rats and the cats what is up with that well who's freaked out often is hospitals restaurants (laughs) uh uh, people people who uh, run businesses uh that are public service businesses, uh, you know, and, and including office buildings, you know, where, where um, you, you wonder if you're walking into some office building and going to some office on the 10th floor, why is there a big horrible rat out there? You know? <laughs> uh, and some of these rats are pretty scary looking. They got the, the bloodshot eyes and the claws. Yeah. Teeth gripping blood too frequently. Oh, right, right, right. But so, so here's, so, so explain this in, in, in terms that even I can understand. You know, why, why is it a problem to set up? I mean, this whole thing, this has, and I remember, you know, from, from the class that you taught, um, you know, this whole issue about what kind of signs you can have and, and what the signs say and where the sign, you know, and, and, but how does an inflatable rat or cat have to do with a sign? That's a good question. The the unions take the position, and so far the federal courts have taken the position, that a, a rat is a form of speech, just like in the famous case uh, involving the high school girl during the Vietnam War, wearing an armband is a form of speech. Um, and, and so far, at least, the federal courts have said uh, the rat is speech. The, the Trump administration, uh, both the Justice Department and the National Labor Relations Board, are arguing that a rat is like picketing, and so you cannot do that at a secondary employer, that is, at a location that isn't your boss's location. Um, but so far, the courts have said, uh, no, we think this is speech, and, and so therefore you can speak anywhere. Uh, so it's, it's about to come to a conflict, though, because the, the NLRB is going to rule, or the Trump NLRB is going to rule, that the rat cop constitutes unlawful secondary picketing or unlawful coercion of a secondary employer. Um, and, and it'll get fought out in the, in the courts. It'll be a battle between the First Amendment and the labor laws interpreted by the current NLRB. Uh, Matt, Ed Smith here. He, he's rolling his eyes, by the way. Well, Matt, you can't oh, see it because it's radio, but Matt is totally rolling his eyes. They're going around and around like, 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 like one of those cartoon rats. <laughs> it could be. Well, I, I find it... You know, if if we were kind of being flown from Mars to here and we were told that this is an issue that people fight over, um, <laughs> that's that's what gets me, you know. And, and given the fact that we're behind the eight ball nine times out of ten as labor uh, organizers or reps, 
this is ridiculous. And and but it's not surprising that the NLRB and uh, stocked with Trump people uh, and the and the and the Trump administration would take this position. Um, because well, their, their it's all about power, more, right? Yeah, their position is even more extreme. Um, in in First Amendment jurisprudence, there are two types of speech. There's the kind of speech that you and I have an opinion about something, or we have a political opinion. And then there's what's known as commercial speech. Commercial speech is like an advertisement. Well, commercial speech can be regulated. Right. There, there always was regulations about liquor advertisements, cigarette advertisements. That's, those are the ones that come to mind most frequently. And commercial speech, the government can regulate more easily. The Trump Department of Justice is taking the position that union speech, anything having to do with labor, is commercial speech and therefore can be regulated. The problem with that argument is that they made the opposite argument in the Janus case. <laughs> That's what I was just going to say. Oops. That's what I was just going to say. How do they square that? And hopefully, well, I guess, you know, my, my concern is, is that Everything's become politicized, and we know that courts have been politicized in the past. We get it. But it's even more so now. So my concern is you're going to have some justices or judges and then potentially justices of the Supreme Court bending over backwards to get to a ruling that they want and using and using um, poor, poor analytical reasoning. That's what I'm nervous about. Well, yeah, I'd be a little more nervous if, if they hadn't just decided Janice, uh, which made clear that labor speech is regular speech and, and and therefore you know this but against unions because this they were talking about what they call forced speech that is you can't make a public sector employee join a labor union right. because that's forcing them to issue a, an opinion uh, or, or take a position um, so after they've said that they can't then turn around and say oh no no labor union speech is not same kind of speech. It's just commercial. No, watch, they, watch, they, Matt. I'm going to make a prediction could. here. They, they will. <laughs> Maybe I'm more sanguine than you are. But. <laughs> who, who are you going to believe, me or your own lion eyes? Right? <laughs> I hope well, you're right, Matt. I, I do, do too. But I, I just, you know, the, you know, you know, Ed raised the question of how they square it. How they square it is they just, they, they just like, yeah. Well, that was this and this. Or they'll, know. or they'll find another analysis to make um, and, yeah. and kick it out on another ground. All right, Matt. Back to you. Here's a question for you. So here's the thing I don't understand. I, I I did uh, a deep, deep dive into this whole rats and cats thing. I just fascinated. <laughs> You're going to be able to teach your own class on rats and cats. Uh, I don't know about that. But here's the thing that one of the things that came up uh, in this um, in these various cases, because this thing has been bouncing around for quite a while. I was surprised to find out uh, that, you know, employers have been, and it's not just the rats and the cats. I mean, there's been, uh, you know, as you know, you know, debates for years. And I remember in our class we talked about this uh, a lot of construction sites they have that they have different entrances and you're allowed to pick it at one entrance and not at the other entrance so this is kind of part and parcel of, of all of those kinds of disputes and it always i mean just as a guy on the streets organizing protests it always seemed to me kind of weird and i have to tell you matt that you know i've been with folks here in town because we got our own rat we got our own cat not we the council but various affiliates in fact one of our affiliates, the operating engineers, have a uh, oversized inflatable uh, operating engineer uh, to to you know, make that point. So, um, time for me to get a nurse. There you go. Seriously, we can do this. We can. I can hook you I, up. I may. But here's the, here's the question. One of the things that employers have argued is that these inflatable balloons are uh, intimidating people. Help me help me understand. Well, well here's you know the language in um, the section of the National Labor Relations Act that prohibits. 
uh, involving a, a second employer, not your own employer in any kind of labor dispute, re- refers to intimidation, coercion uh, of that secondary employer or that secondary employer's employees. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that's the argument they're making, is that um, people going into the, you know, or, or, that, or that secondary employee's customers, uh, that people going into a facility that has a rat in front of it are intimidated by that. Now, you know, it, it is it is a balloon. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> Not to put too fine a point on it. Yeah, I mean, it'd be one thing if it was RoboCop. Right, that would be scary. That would be intimidating. Well, you know, it's just yeah, it is. It's a balloon. Does it? Does well, it's it, a big balloon. Does it bite? It's a big balloon. It's a scary looking balloon. Does Except it, the cat. The cat yeah. never looks that scary. Does it bite? Although, actually, I have to say, and Matt knows I'm talking about one of the cat balloons. It's a fat cat, so it's not just a, like a nice little putty cat. Mm-hmm. It's a fat cat. Uh, usually, they have a cigar, but the one particular one that I read an article about is they have the cat. Well, when we get the guy from from Big Sky Balloons on, uh, in in one uh, paw, I guess you should say, it wasn't really a cat hand. It's squeezing a worker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the argument, Matt, was that in squeezing the worker, people coming in really felt kind of scared and intimidated. And I'm like, it's a cart. It's not only a balloon. It's a cartoon character. Like anybody, you know, it's like it it seemed to me and not to, you know, make light of it because these are serious issues. But it seemed to me that, you know, this is kind of, I don't know, not serious. Like like anybody looking at this cartoon cat squeezing a cartoon worker. I don't know. I just I, I felt like I was missing something here. What you're missing is is the fact that that's the argument they have to make. I mean, they have to make that this is that this is coercion and intimidation because that's the language of the statute. And and so you know that if they can't make that argument, they can't make any argument at all. Uh, <laughs> so, so they make they make the one they have to make. I mean, you some know? of our, some of our chants are one could say. Come close to intimidating. I mean, one of the big chants we have is, hey, hey, ho, ho, Chris Garlock has got to go. Or Mayor I'm Bowser. I'm feeling intimidated right now. I mean, we, we, and we say some pretty, cry. we say some pretty harsh things about our political leaders or our bosses. Free speech, though. That's right, free speech. Right, right, right Matt? Right. That's free speech. Yeah, but, but, sure, but, sure. but me carrying a sign, or let's say I have a picture of, uh, let's say I've got a 100 foot picket sign with a picture of a rat with you better have some dripping, friends to hold dripping that sign. Well, I'm a strong guy right let's assume <laughs> I mean let me I'm, I'm just trying to stretch this out of the box so if I've got a picket but but, but, but stop and think about um, anti-abortion protesters I was just gonna go there Thank you. Yep, yep, yep. Are, are carrying signs of dead babies yeah they right, are you know right. uh, you know and, and to me that's fairly revolting it, yeah revolting, it's supposed right? to be but, uh, yeah and you know and our and our picket signs, our chants are, are supposed to be, you know, an exercise of our right to say, we don't like you. Right. <laughs> well, and Matt, but this goes to the whole reason that I decided not to go into labor law, because because in the end of the day, after, you know, studying with you and doing a bunch of reading, you know, what it seemed like to me is every time we, that's, you know, us in the labor room, will come, some, come up with something that works or sort of works or threatens to work, they pass some damn law against it. Seriously, right? Yeah. I mean, every yeah. every time we come up with so okay, so you can't go. I mean, so you know, we can't go after the actual uh, employee. You know, we, we every time we come up with something effective, you know, and I, I just feel like 
that doesn't make sense. That doesn't make sense, right? I mean, it, it seems to me that, that, that law should be about protecting the most number of people as opposed to protecting the bosses. Uh, that's what I don't get. Well, you know, the, our labor laws, which are, which are somewhat unique um, in, in terms of modern industrial societies, I mean, our, our labor laws are, are designed to narrow disputes. Right. And, and to make sure that disputes all get resolved, not through action, but through legalistic means, arbitrations or, you know, uh, fact-finding hearings or, uh, but, but, but the labor law really is designed to, um, get labor peace as that is defined by the bosses. Uh, peace meaning, you know, people are not walking off my job, people are not occupying the factory floor, people are not, you know, um. Saying mean things. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, that, you know, we, we, yeah, we I mean, it took actions like sit-downs and unlawful strikes to uh, get any labor laws to begin with. Um, but, but, but the first thing the labor laws did was to make sure you didn't take those kind of actions. Um, well, and Matt, you'll not be surprised, you know, I mean, you know, in this show, we really focus on, it's called Your Rights to Work, and we focus on, you know, I mean, when, you know, it's, so it is about labor law, but I mean, honestly, you know, half the time or more, probably more, right, Ed, people call up and they'll say, you know, they'll, they'll give, tell us what's going on, and it'll turn out, yeah, you know, that's terrible, but that's actually legal, you know, right, right. no surprise. Um, however, However, that said, that doesn't mean that's not the end of the story. There's lots of other things, you know, obviously a lot of times the answer is organizing a union, but that's a long-term solution. Um, there's lots of, and Matt, you know, you and I did a lot of this back in the day. You know, there's lots of other things you can do uh, because labor law, you know, tends to protect the employer. Um, there's lots of other things that you can do. So, I, I mean, that, that to me is one of the key things here, right? Yeah, and, and um, you know, we're, we're also... At a point where using the mechanism of the National Labor Relations Board to win a union election is is not really a very useful route for unions anymore. Uh, you know, the the employers have have got so many ways to um, intimidate their employees, and the remedies that are available from the board are skimpy and they take forever. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. So. Um, it is, you know, it is by bringing social pressure, community-wide pressure, things that are not within the normal confines of getting cards signed uh, uh, that that are turning out to be more effective these days, and at least in a lot of situations. And also, you know, we've we've got unions now looking at other forms of organizing, uh, like the organizing that went on around the fight for fifteen, that is organizing on. Uh, on a broader class-wide base, at least among, you know, classes of types of employees, fast food workers, or in in Rochester now and in Buffalo, we've got some organizing of baristas going on in coffee mm-hmm, shops. Mm-hmm. And, and some of that, at least, is going on on the basis of all the baristas in town rather than the baristas at this coffee shop, that coffee shop, the other coffee shop, you know, um, and and trying to organize on a on a group-wide basis, uh, rather than just simply one employer, then the next employer, then the next employer. Um, so there's there's lots of those kinds of uh, alternative methods of organizing that are being tried out now just because the traditional method of getting cards signed and having an NLRB-sponsored election it, it 
is not working. Well, Matt Fusco, I really appreciate you taking time out from your vacation. We'll let you get back to the beach. But, hey, next time you're in D.C., come on by. We'll get you in the studio, all right? All right, great. Good to talk to you both. Thanks, Matt. Take, Take care. care. Enjoy the Bye-bye. cake. In 1931, the miners and the mine owners in southeastern Kentucky were locked in a bitter and violent struggle called the Harlan County War. In an attempt to intimidate the family of Union leader Sam Reese, Sheriff J.H. Blair and his men, hired by the mining company, illegally entered their home in search of Reese. Reese had been warned in advance and escaped, but his wife Florence and their children were terrorized. That night, after the men had gone, Florence wrote the lyrics to Which Side Are You On? on a calendar that hung in their kitchen, taking the melody from a traditional ballad. The simple but powerful song has become one of the American labor movement's most well-known anthems, sung on picket lines, rallies, and protests, and covered by everyone from Pete Seeger to Billy Bragg and Rebel Diaz. Florence Reese died in Knoxville, Tennessee on August 3, 1986, at the age of 86. Here's a special Labor History Today version of Which Side Are You On? featuring Florence Reese. Pete Seeger, Natalie Merchant, Rebel Diaz, and the Dropkick Murphys. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? Which side are you on, boys? Which side are you on? See, I gotta draw a line, I can't take it no more If you ain't down with revolution, what you waiting for? Making money for suckers and not communities poor Ripping flags off of coffins, man, this ain't our war Colonized and terrorized by the world's biggest killers The U.S. government, the biggest weapon and drug dealers Filling prisons with children, incarcerating the future MySpace and Facebook got us stuck on computers Stuck on stupid bumping music that's abusive to the shorties and the On August 9, 1997, President Bill Clinton issued Executive Order 13058, banning smoking in all interior spaces owned or operated by the executive branch of the federal government. This came at the end of what some historians have labeled the cigarette century. 
in the 20th century, smoking employees, employers, and even non-smokers contested the rights of workers to light up cigarettes while on the job. To learn more about this, Labor History Today's Patrick Dixon spoke to Gregory Wood from Frostburg State University in Maryland. Dr. Wood is the author of the 2016 book Clearing the Air, The Rise and Fall of Smoking in the Workplace. Here's Patrick. I'm glad you're able to join us today, Greg. Welcome to Labor History Today. Well, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. So I'm excited about the topic we have today. This is something we've never covered before. Just to begin then, many are familiar with the story of prohibition and how many progressive era employers often joined the cause of temperance because they were concerned about the performance of intoxicated workers, people getting injured and so on. But in your research, you found that many employers were equally opposed to the use of tobacco in the early 20th century. Why was that? Um, Certainly. Let's see. Um, I think it overlaps very strongly with um, period concerns about worker productivity. And in the era of Frederick Winslow Taylor's scientific management, um, foremen and managers and employers become deeply concerned with, well, how do you make sure workers are assiduously sticking to their tasks? Um, And something like smoking, which they thought of, on one hand, certainly as a a sign of a moral failing on the part of working class people and a kind of moral weakness that they would indulge in these cheap cigarettes. Um, They were also um, opposed to cigarettes as something that would somehow distract or pull workers away from this kind of steadfast attention to their work at their machines and at their workbenches. So in factories where employers like Henry Ford or Thomas Edison, just they would ban smoking outright. Um, but workers would still clandestine, clandestinely find ways to sneak themselves away for at least a moment or two to smoke. And so in the early 20th century, in the early 1900s and the 1910s, in particular, um, smoking is decried by employers uh, essentially as something that undercut what they wanted as constant productivity from their workers. So, so the logic of the assembly line really flies in the face of workers with nicotine addictions needing to take care of their cigarette breaks, whether or not the boss would permit them. So it wasn't just like a, a moral failing that they decried, but also that they worry greatly about the dollars and cents of workers not being productive. I see. And so in your in your book, one of the figures that really pops out is, as you say, that in 1908, the average smoker consumed 40 cigarettes a day. Yes. Were, were workers very resourceful in their efforts to circumvent employers' rules? Um. They, were, they absolutely were quite creative. Um, what I thought as I did research for my book, Clearing the Air, The Rise and Fall of Smoking in the Workplace, I found a particularly detailed and revealing set of records at the Hammer Mill Paper Company archive in Erie, Pennsylvania, where two labor spies um, documented in great detail um, the habits of smokers in the shop as they observed them. They're there to look for unions and um union organizers trying to stir up trouble in the factory, but what they found was that workers were smoking so much that the the factory could barely function. And even though employers, the the managers there demanded workers stick with the machines for the 11 and 13 hour shifts they had, what they found was workers would sneak away either close by or far away to 
feed the nicotine habit. They would either step behind machines in these large paper machine rooms to smoke very quickly, or they would disappear into the restrooms, which were so dingy, bosses never went there, so it was kind of like a safe space. And since their factory was close to Lake Erie, they would they would sneak out of the factory, out of the receiving dock, and go down to the, the water to smoke. And they would not just do that quickly at all times. Sometimes they would sneak away for a half hour, an hour, to chat with their friends and smoke. Or they'd hide in train cars outside the factory. Um, workers did whatever they could to secretly and without punishment feed their nicotine habits. And they worked very hard at this. Um, they would crawl into crawl spaces um, to smoke where they knew the bosses wouldn't necessarily be looking. And the, the labor spies in Hammer Mill, these two guys that were hired, um, they, they were complaining that the, the no smoking rules were basically a dead letter uh, in the factory. And even though there are signs all over the place and managers paid lip service that they wanted this practice stopped, uh, there really was very little that occurred to actually stop it. And they even had... Um, what they called watchmen, who were supposed to go around and find the smokers hiding, and smokers found strategies to avoid them as well. And so there was this constant shifting, almost um, uh, patterns of clandestine movement that were supposed to protect smokers from getting caught. And so that was a really fascinating read. I built a whole chapter around those records because you see all these very complex strategies workers had to sustain their nicotine addiction, despite the fact that management was so opposed to it. But So you skip forward a few years, and if you look at films of that era, you might see someone like Humphrey Bogart smoking, and it's not uh, filmed in a pejorative way. He's seen as Certainly. quite credible or quite cool. How, how does smoking transition from being seen in this negative light that you describe to being much more acceptable or even fashionable by, by mid-century? I, I think there's a couple of key developments. One book I read very recently called Smoke If You Got Him um, by a historian named Joel R. Bias. Um, he argues that World War I um, is a huge moment in, as far as making smoking respectable because the, the military essentially creates three million smokers during the war as they give out the free cigarette ration. Uh, during that period. And so this reintroduces during the interwar period a whole newfound respectability for smoking uh, among large elements of the population. But it truly is World War II, um, as I argue in the Clearing the Air book, that really opens the door for cigarette smoking writ large to become truly respectable in American culture and creates the what Alan Brandt, the cigarette historian, would call the cigarette century at that moment. In World War II, I noticed in the book that there is this culture of smoking advertising in World War II pop culture that celebrated cigarette smoking as very patriotic, very respectable, um, something that could be admired as a, a welcome solace among the warriors overseas and for those at home that supported and worried for them. Um, and at the same time, uh, workers themselves in industrial workplaces in the U.S., they're striking for the right to smoke. Um, and I argued in the book that as smoking during World War II became something so respectable in World War II pop culture that workers themselves in the factories found their employers' smoking bans to be quite anachronistic. 
uh, in a society that embraced and celebrated smoking, how could employers think like Victorians mm. and prohibit smoking outright? And I, I argued that was the rub that uh, led a lot of frustrated workers to strike against smoking bans in places like Detroit or Flint or Dearborn. Uh, and so I argue that, that really it's the 40s when smoking becomes truly respectable and mainstreamed throughout American culture. People were smoking a staggering amount. Many, many people must have been dying of lung cancer. How was this explained? Well, in the interwar period, in the 30s and 40s, what I was frustrated by was the conversation about it is fairly scant. Uh, there's still a, a, a sort of accepted orthodoxy uh, in the 30s and 40s that, um, that smoking was basically healthful or benign as far as its health impacts. Um, it's, it's not until truly the 50s when the, the public consciousness about smoking's risks begins, begins to change um, with medical, certain medical studies and certain government studies that um, are coming to light at that time. But in the interwar period, for instance, um, cigarette advertisers would roll out medical physicians saying that their cigarette brand that they preferred was quite healthful <laughs> mm. uh, and benign. So it, it was... It's the 50s, truly, where that um, medical understanding of tobacco's harmful effects begins to change. And you write that it was white-collar office workers that really led a non-smokers revolt against tobacco use in the workplace. Why did officers become a particular focus attention? and What means of recourse did non-smokers have? Uh, indeed, that was one of my favorite parts of the book to read. Right, was those discoveries about what I call the the, politi the political emergence of the non-smoker hmm. uh, in post-World War II America. The cigarette historians had really neglected that factor in the history of tobacco, the importance of the aggrieved non-smoking worker in shaping tobacco control politics um, in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But what I argued in the book is that unlike the blue-collar factories of, say, Detroit or Flint, the post-war white-collar office and its particular geography would be the ideal breeding ground for anti-smoking sentiment. A lot of observers would call these post-war offices dead-air cul-de-sacs. So unlike the large open spaces of the Ford Rouge plant, offices were more compressed spaces that moved air around very poorly. And with white-collar workers more or less stuck at their desks with their typewriters and their phones uh, and their dicta machines. They're not able to get away from their neighbors nearby who are smoking like chimneys all around them. And with the air circulation not being very good, I argued that in the book that this proliferation of non-smoking workers protesting the smoking habits of their neighbors is because of how they're experiencing in this particular setting what um, was uh, called secondhand smoke or sometimes side stream smoke. And it's this recoiling from that that gives rise to organizations that were um, these activist groups that were promoting tobacco control by the 60s and 70s and 80s. Mm. It's that particular geography of the office that would ensure a lot of resentment about how widespread the smoking habit was among a lot of workers. 
and so, as I understand it, employers increasingly institute smoking bans in, in the later decades of the 20th century. But it, it seems to me at the same time, they don't go around yanking out soda machines as rates of obesity and, and diabetes soar. Is there concern for em employee health? Is this disingenuous? How should we understand it? Um, that's particularly complicated. I, I think what I, would, what I would say that I noticed in my research on um, tobacco control in the workplace was during the 1980s in particular, um, business schools and activist groups and medical scientists were really putting it out there, the numerical data about how costly it was for employers, especially in the private sector, to have smoking workers on their payrolls with the health care costs, the cleaning costs, the lost productivity, the lost wages that year by year smoking workers cost them. That that, that concern about dollars and cents is really what animated employers to pursue tobacco control in the workplace and smoking prohibitions as much as they did uh, during the 1980s. So much so that by the late 80s, something like 80% of U.S. private sector employers either had a smoking ban of some kind or were implementing or in the planning stages for one. And so it was that concern employers had at that time that this was something that created so much health care cost that it was uh, that it had to go uh, in, in one way or another. And that seemed to be um, more widely discussed and known rather than, say, questions about soda, for instance, certainly at that time. Um, my hypothesis, my suggestion, my argument would be that once these worker habits begin to cause real economic pain to the employer, that's when prohibition measures start to become very aggressively pursued. Mm. Um, even though employers would suggest in a very paternalistic way how they care about the health of their workforce, um, that may very well have been the case, but I argue that, that what's probably a kind of window dressing for a more deeper concern they had, that these unhealthful workers were an extraordinary expense and that those costs had to be drawn down. That's, in fact, why even the military in the early 70s gets rid of the Army cigarette ration, was because hmm. congressmen were writing to the DOD, the Department of Defense, saying, you know, why are we paying taxpayer dollars for cigarettes only to turn around and pay lifetime of extraordinary health care costs for these ailing veterans who smoke? Um, it, it's the dollars and cents concerns that, would, that led employers to sort of push um, a more healthful approach to how they wanted their workers to behave and how they wanted them to either not smoke or not to um, eat unhealthful foods, etc. Now, you also found that in the case of collectively bargained workplaces, this put some local union leaders in, in quite a complicated position, right? Uh, yes, that was uh, in Chapter 6 of the Clearing the Air book. I thought that was um, also really interesting to look at because um, in the labor history literature, oftentimes these late 20th century unions are thought of as these very bureaucratic institutions that were quite disconnected in various ways from the day-to-day -day concerns of the rank and file. Um, and what I found in researching this tobacco control question was 
that um, it's a fairly complicated story of how the union bureaucracies and union leaders were engaged to their rank-and-file constituents around the smoking question. And generally, I found unions were extraordinarily sympathetic to the grievances of their smoking members. And what I suggest in the Clearing the Air book is that the reason union bureaucracies were very sensitive to this question among the, their smoking members was because the loss of these long-standing smoking privileges in the workplace seems to portend of the overall decline of union clout um, in a post-1950s U.S. society, that as smoking workers lost in the workplace, it seemed to be a harbinger that labor's fortunes, labor's clout was also declining along with that. And unions generally fought hard for these smoking privileges among their members because they were so desperate to find some way that they could have a bulwark against this expansion of employer power that's gaining pace for instance, in the 1980s, you know, in the aftermath of, for instance, Reagan um, breaking the uh, PATCO strike in the, in the early 1980s. Um, so as labor's fortunes declined, they wanted, they fought hard for smoking privileges as what they understood as a way to somehow protect worker clout in the factory or in the office. Um, and non-smoking workers were often frustrated with their union leaders for being as sympathetic as they were to the smoking privileges of smoking workers. And one point I make in the, the Clearing Air book is that um, tobacco control politics organized labor were quite cancerous because despite all of the um, animated sentiments of the rank and file, either for or against, union bureaucracies were never able to really work it out and somehow move this energy into a productive direction that might somehow help organize labor weather the storm, for instance, of the 1980s. Um, but rather, it becomes this incredibly unproductive conversation and really doesn't either, doesn't really help unions, it only hurts them, uh, as um, the rank and file bickered about whether or not they should be allowed to smoke, and employers in the name of healthcare continue to toss aside worker smoking privileges. Hmm. Just just as we come to a close, many of these questions about the prerogatives of employers still exist, but in, in different forms, it seems, that restrictions upon tobacco use continue to tighten and general consumption appears to decline. At the same time, though, mm -hmm. Uh, there's a general liberalization of laws concerning marijuana use, for example. While decriminalizing possession seems to make sense to most people, is there any way in which the history of tobacco use can inform the way we think about the prerogatives of employers and employees when it comes to recreational marijuana? One thing, a couple of things I would suggest. Um, I think that there's going to be an ongoing tension between um, state laws or even uh, maybe down the, down the road, federal laws that liberalize drug consumption, especially marijuana consumption, uh, and the particular concerns of the workplaces of the private sector. 
um, because I think even if the wider public um, becomes more accepting of those practices, in the workplace, these dollars and cents considerations and employer concerns about the attention or not that workers give to their jobs is going to greatly shape their views about the drug question. So if, for instance, employers in the private sector judge marijuana to be something that detracts from productive work in the workplace and employer or, or employee attention to their jobs, I don't, I don't believe that they would be anywhere near welcoming or accepting of it. And even today, you know, certainly drug, test, drug testing remains a, a common norm in working class occupations. And uh, I think going forward, even if states continue to decriminalize marijuana, I think it'll be a, a, a very different um, situation when employers step out of the parking lot and into the workplace proper. Um, there I expect rules to remain more restrictive or even draconian. It's been terrific talking to you today. Thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. Anytime. There are women of many descriptions In this clear world as everyone knows Some are living in beautiful mansions And are wearing the finest of clothes There are blue-blooded queens and princesses With their charms made of diamond and pearl But the only and thoroughbred lady Is the rebel girl It's the rebel girl The rebel girl To the working class She's a precious that's it for this week's edition of Labor History Today. We really hope you enjoyed it. I especially had fun doing the Which Side Are You On mashup, and I'd love to hear your thoughts and suggestions. You can subscribe to Labor History Today on your favorite podcast app, or you can also spread the word by liking and following us. Today's music was Rebel Girl by Alia Hansen. The song was written by Joe Hill who was inspired by fellow IWW organizer Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was born on August 7, 1890. As always, thanks for listening, and let us know what you think by commenting or emailing us. Labor History Today is produced by the Metro Washington Council's Union City Radio and the Kalmanovitz Initiative for Labor and the Working Poor at Georgetown University. For Labor History Today, this has been Chris Garlock. Thanks for listening. Keep making history and see you next time. She brings courage and pride and joy to the fighting rebel boy. We've had girls before, but we need some more in the industrial workers of the world. For it's great to fight for freedom with the rest.